0: you feel. Tell me love is real. Mm-hmm. Words of love you whisper soft and true. Hi, this is Brent White. It's Monday, August 6th, 2018, and this is episode number 28 in my ongoing series of devotional podcasts. You're listening right now to the song Words of Love, written and recorded by Buddy Holly in 1957 in all its double-tracked analog glory. You give people an infinite number of digital tracks today, by contrast, and they can't create something that sounds nearly this good. It's just wonderful. Anyway, most of you are probably more familiar with the Beatles 1964 cover version from their album Beatles for Sale, or the long-forgotten American LP Beatles 6. But I recorded Holly's version directly from his 1978 Greatest Hits album, Buddy Holly Lives, also known as 20 Golden Greats. But this song is today's theme because I'm talking about words of love in the context of something that many of us contemporary Christians don't like doing, that is witnessing, or the dreaded E-word, evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others using Words telling others about Jesus and what he's done for us and what he means to us and how other people can be saved. We witness in many different ways, but at some point we have to do so using words, words of love. And in general, Christians would rather receive a root canal than to witness with words. Yet the Lord himself has commanded us to do this important work and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age Matthew 2818 through20. And perhaps you object. Yes, but Jesus was directing these words to his 12, or 11, but soon to be 12, apostles. They followed this command, and here we are today. They no longer apply to us. These words no longer apply to us. But, but that interpretation can't be right because notice Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We haven't reached the end of the age yet. Therefore, he must have also been directing these words to his disciples up to and including those who will be alive when that end of the age happens, Right? That includes us. Moreover, when he gives the equivalent uh, great commission in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We know that even today we haven't yet reached the end of the earth with the gospel. There remain in 2018 places that are yet unreached with the gospel, much less toward the end of the first century. So Jesus' words weren't merely for that first generation of disciples, but for all disciples until the end of the age, and until the gospel message has reached the end of the earth. As for another objection, yes, but the Great Commission isn't for just anyone. It's for pastors, for ministers like you, Pastor Brent, not for me. I don't have the gift of evangelism after all. My first response to that is that we're all ministers, whether we're ordained or not. Philip, for example, in Acts 9, wasn't a credentialed apostle, yet through his witness, the gospel reached Ethiopia. Not to mention one of the most successful evangelists in all of scripture, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, through whose witness an entire village was saved. The only qualification, as far as I can see, for doing successful evangelistic work is having had a life-saving, soul-saving encounter with Jesus Christ. So, are you a Christian? Are you Born again, and all Christians are born again if they're authentically Christians, then that means you've been given the Holy Spirit. So, of course, you can be a witness. Moreover, if you happen to be a United Methodist Christian, when you joined the church, you promised God that you would be a witness for Christ. So, how are you doing at that? How are we doing at that? Speaking of witnessing, a few years ago, there was an item in the news that shook me up. ISIS terrorists captured a group of 21 Egyptian Christians and led them in chains to a beach in Libya, where each one was beheaded, simply because they were Christians. From what I read, these terrorists posted the video of their execution online for all the world to see. But if ISIS thought that by killing these Christians they would be harming the cause of Christ in the world, they were badly mistaken. Each Christian, far from renouncing their faith in Christ as perhaps the terrorists hoped, each one shouted praises to Jesus before the sword came down and ended their lives. And when I read this, when I saw a photo in a news article of these Christians walking on the beach to their imminent deaths, I was struck by a chilling thought, as I'm sure other Christians living comfortable lives in the safe, prosperous West also thought. What if that were me? What if I were in that situation, would my faith be strong enough to withstand the pressure that these Christians must have felt to abandon their faith in Christ? Would I be able to be a witness like them, even if it meant sacrificing my life? I assume that if these Egyptians recanted their Christian faith and swore allegiance to Allah and Muhammad, his so-called prophet, then their lives could have been spared. Yet these Christians persisted in their faith, they bore witness to Christ, and they were murdered as martyrs. Would I have the courage to do what they did? Flash forward two years. My family and I are visiting New York City on summer vacation. We're sitting on a crowded subway train in Manhattan, a well-dressed and well-spoken woman with a lovely Jamaican accent stands near a door and begins preaching the gospel. She pauses for the loading and unloading of passengers at each stop. For all we know, this happens often on New York subway trains. While she speaks, commuters stare at devices, newspapers, books. No one looks up. No one makes eye contact with the woman, including me. I mostly stare at the floor. I want to be cool, you know. I want to blend in alongside everyone else. Later, when we got off the train, my family debriefed about the experience. We agreed that there was literally nothing untrue in her gospel message. She emphasized God's love, the abundant life that we have in Christ, the opportunity that we all have to repent of our sins, to turn to Jesus and to receive eternal life. She was faithful to talk about God's judgment, but hers was not a turn or burn kind of message. She seemed perfectly kind, perfectly respectful, perfect loving, even perfectly sane, in case you're wondering. We wondered whether this method of evangelism was effective. I said that it isn't ultimately up to us to judge her effectiveness. Paul tells us, for instance, in Romans 1.16 that the gospel itself is the power of God, which I take to mean that when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, the Holy Spirit works through the message to reach people with it. Therefore, the Holy Spirit was giving power to this woman's words, and the extent to which her message was effective was between God the Holy Spirit, and those in her audience who needed to hear it. We can't know whether she was effective, but it seems very likely that in her own way, she was. Remember Paul's words. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. It doesn't matter how or where or in what context we preach the gospel, despite its power, it will always be received by many as a stumbling block and as foolishness, right? Do you think Paul was an effective witness, an effective evangelist, an effective gospel preacher? Of course he was, probably the most effective ever. Yet people still heard Paul's message and thought, what an idiot. He's so misguided. If that were true of Paul, how much more for us? Regardless, this woman made me feel uncomfortable. And I'm here to tell you that this is my problem, not hers. Because this woman's bold witness filled me with guilt. It reminded me of what a coward I usually am when it comes to witnessing. Her example judged me because I know that I wouldn't have the courage to do what she did. At least, I don't think. We moved recently to Gwinnett County, which is in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. Before doing so, we lived in Fayetteville on the south side. For whatever reason, there was a period of time this past spring when nearly every weekend in our previous neighborhood, Jehovah's Witnesses were out in full force, knocking on doors, canvassing the neighborhood. I mean, every weekend. So I resolved to talk to them when they knocked at my door and share with them the true gospel, not the distorted, deeply heterodox version of the gospel that they were promoting. And I, and I did talk to many of them, but I wish that they were not out there canvassing in my neighborhood, telling people about their wayward church and their distorted version of Jesus, who to them is nothing more than the archangel Michael, not God become flesh. For the sake of people's souls, I did not want Jehovah's Witnesses to share their distorted gospel message from a version of the Bible that they have badly mistranslated and misinterpreted. I did not want them to lead people astray with a false gospel, because after all, I want people to know Jesus, the real Jesus. That's what I wanted. But... Not so much that I would get out there, that I would knock on strangers' doors, that I would canvas this neighborhood, that I would seek to tell people about Jesus, the real Jesus. Heaven forbid I do that. Can you imagine the embarrassment? But then I remembered, thank heavens. We Christians don't have to do that, because we know that that going door-to-door, sharing the gospel, or even inviting people to church, we know that doesn't work. That's what all the experts say, they've got their research, or at least they must have their research since so few of us Christians seem to be doing it anymore. We we let the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons uh, corner the market on door-to-door evangelism. Yeah, you can tell I'm being sarcastic. For all I know, the conventional wisdom is correct: knocking on neighbors' doors or strangers' doors is an ineffective way to share the gospel. But if so, let's at least admit. That that's a convenient fact for most of us Christians, because the vast majority of us wouldn't want to do it. To walk up to a stranger or even an unsuspecting neighbor and initiate a conversation about Jesus? I mentioned those Egyptian Christians at the top of the episode who weren't afraid of dying for their faith. Would I have what it takes to be like them? I don't know because I'm less afraid of dying for my faith than dying of embarrassment. For my faith? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with us? Because while, of course, we always want to witness in appropriate, effective, sensitive ways in as much as it depends on us, I'm, I'm sorry. Being uncomfortable or being embarrassed or being afraid of witnessing is hardly a sufficient reason to avoid doing it entirely. Did you hear that? Just because we're uncomfortable with witnessing is not a sufficient reason to avoid doing it. We will be judged by God for our failure to witness when the Lord has given us ample opportunities to do so. So you and I may rightly say, but this method isn't effective or that method isn't effective. Okay, then let's figure out some method that is effective, with my earlier qualification that the Holy Spirit ultimately makes a method effective. But we need to figure out a way that works for us, because A, we've been commanded by Jesus to be witnesses, to make disciples for Jesus Christ, and B, the stakes are too high for us to avoid witnessing. Because nothing less than heaven or hell hangs in the balance for people, not just strangers, but many people we know and love. Evangelist Dwight Moody was once criticized after one of his evangelistic sermons. A woman in the audience said, I don't like your methods for evangelism. He said, I agree. I don't like my methods either. How do you do it? She said, I don't. Well, in that case, he said, I like my way of doing things better than your way of not doing them. Brothers and sisters, let's face facts. We are mostly not doing evangelism. We are not witnessing. We have no idea based on our own experience whether or not some particular form of evangelism is effective or not because we haven't tried it. But speaking for myself, I would sure like to find out what can be effective when it comes to evangelism. Wouldn't you? Because if we're waiting on uh, some method of evangelism that doesn't risk making us uncomfortable or embarrassed or afraid or self conscious, a method of evangelism that will somehow be easy for us and, well, respectable to us, a method that won't potentially make us look like fools in other people's eyes, a method that won't humble us in some way, then I suspect that we're going to wait our entire lives and no one, no one, no one is going to be saved as a result of our witness. And that ought to matter to us. And I get it. I mean, the typical Methodist um, method of evangelism, and here I go again, picking on the Methodists, but they're my people. I know them. If I were Lutheran, I'm sure I could criticize Lutherans. If I were Baptist, I'm sure I could criticize Baptists. But the typical Methodist method of evangelism, or at least what passes for evangelism, is this. That if we just get out in the community and love people and serve people and perform acts of kindness for people, that will be enough. People will see how much we love them, and they'll, of course, happily forego sleeping in on Sunday mornings, perhaps the only day of the week they can do that, and come to church. And after they come to church, so we tell ourselves, then they'll hear the gospel, often th- through osmosis, perhaps, and they'll get converted somehow. Because, of course, we Methodists are famous for having so many adult conversions, after all. Sorry, that was sarcasm again. But this but this so-called method of evangelism is not faithful to who we are as Methodists. Listen to our United Methodist Book of Discipline, paragraph 130, entitled, faithful ministry. Listen to the eloquence, the directness, the forthrightness of these words. The people of God, who are the church made visible in the world, must convince the world of the reality of the gospel, or leave it unconvinced. There can be no evasion or delegation of this responsibility. The church is either faithful as a witnessing and serving community, or it loses its vitality and its impact on an unbelieving world. Do you see how high the stakes are? In our United Methodist Book of Discipline, I mean, I noticed it says witnessing and serving community, and perhaps that gives us a little bit of wiggle room. It's as if we Methodists in general have opted to be a serving community while forgetting about the witnessing part. Still. You heard that part about convincing the world of the reality of the gospel or leaving it unconvinced. I mean, we are supposed to be giving people an actual choice. I mean, it's all right there. By contrast, we Methodists, we... we do neither. We neither convince nor leave people unconvinced. We never force anyone to make a decision. We just sort of string people along. Hey, it's okay that you never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Come to our trunk or treat. Come to our Easter egg hunt. Let us sell you a pumpkin. Uh, Send your kids to VBS. We won't ask anything of you. We won't try to convince you of the reality of the gospel. We hope, of course, that you'll be so moved by how nice we all are, that you'll believe the gospel, you know, over time by osmosis. But whether you do or not, don't worry. We're not going to put any pressure on you. Our church is a pressure-free zone. All are welcome. Nothing will be expected of of anyone. Believe. Don't believe. We don't care. I mean, we do care actually, but we won't tell you why we care. We won't tell you what's at stake in accepting or rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. We won't ever tell you about eternal life or eternal separation from God. We won't tell you about heaven or hell. I mean, that's what the Baptists are for. We Methodists in general, we don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. We don't want the gospel to be a stumbling block. We don't want to be perceived by others as fools. We don't want the gospel to be perceived as foolishness to the Greeks. So we end up not sharing the gospel at all. At that Methodist conference I attended on St. Simon's Island a few weeks ago, one speaker told us about a method of, quote, witnessing without really witnessing. Evangelism, not by sharing words of love, but works of love. And that's fine as far as it goes. We ought to be sharing works of love but works of love by themselves will never go far enough. So instead of witnessing without really witnessing, suppose we also tried witnessing with witnessing. (laughs) Do you think that might work? (laughs) There's a hymn we sing that says... They will know we are Christians by our love. And that's completely true. They will know that we are Christians by our love. And there is scripture to back it up. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, John thirteen thirty five. But I'm going to argue that if we share only works of love and not words of love, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not nearly as loving as we think we are. Because unless we're telling others about Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel with them, inviting them into a relationship with Jesus, indeed, even warning them about the wrath to come, about final judgment and hell for those outside of a saving relationship with Christ, unless we're doing that, who could say that we're adequately loving people, right? I mean, if we genuinely believe that people will die and go to hell apart from availing themselves of God's one and only rescue plan through his son Jesus? How much do we love them if we're not doing that? If we're unwilling to move heaven and earth if necessary to convince them of the reality of the gospel? This is old news now, but many years ago, the magician, comedian, and celebrity raconteur Penn Gillette, one half of the comic magic duo Pen and Teller, posted a video on his blog about an experience he had recently with a Christian businessman who talked to him after one of his shows, I think in Las Vegas. For context, here's an important fact. Gillette is also an outspoken atheist. Anyway, this Christian gave Gillette the gift of a Bible and told him why it was so important for Gillette to read these words and and believe them. And you can see in the video that Gillette was deeply touched by this gift of a Bible. Tears were welling up in his eyes. I'm not exaggerating, I've seen the video. Tears were welling up in his eyes as he told this story. As I said, Gillette is an outspoken atheist, but he deeply appreciates Christians who share their faith, who witness to their faith, or proselytize, as he says, which means we try to convince others to give their lives to Christ, to have a conversion. That's what proselytism means. In fact, Gillette said that he doesn't respect Christians who don't share their faith with others. I don't respect it at all, he said. And then he continued, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you and eternal life is more important than that. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them or, as we would prefer, share the gospel with them? That's a little strong, I know. Gillette is not being quite fair. He has underestimated the fear of this social awkwardness. There is a lot of pressure to conform to social norms. After all, for that woman to stand up on that crowded subway car last summer in New York City and preach the gospel, oh my goodness, she had to overcome a lot of social pressure. Conformity to social customs is a powerful force, and Gillette underrates that by all means. But even if it's not hatred that prevents us Christians from witnessing, you'd have to admit That it is an insufficient amount of love or faith. I mean, if we don't really believe the Bible's many warnings about judgment, wrath and hell to say nothing of Jesus's many warnings about those things, then I get it. I mean, why risk embarrassing yourself? to share the gospel, if everyone ends up in the same place anyway, if it doesn't really matter, if heaven or hell doesn't really hang in the balance, just keep on doing good charitable work. Keep on working for social justice. Keep on trying to make this world a better place for as long as it lasts. That's a far more respectable line of work. But if we have faith, if we really believe the stuff we say we believe, and of course I I think this podcast is aimed at people who already have faith, well, if that's true, then our failure to witness ultimately comes down to love. If we believe the gospel, what's the loving thing to do or to say to people? Look, I'm sharing this with you because, as always, I'm really talking to myself. I know that I haven't been as faithful as I need to be in this area of witnessing and evangelism. And I don't mean the witnessing that's part of my job as a pastor. I have certainly become more faithful in sharing the gospel from the pulpit and in Bible studies and in the context of church gatherings but i'm talking about what i do out there outside the walls of church outside the the walls of my safe and comfortable home so consider this a line in the sand for me. I will be bolder in sharing the gospel with others. And if you don't like my methods for evangelism, I can promise you that my way of doing things will be better than your way of not doing them. 30 years ago, I was a student at Georgia Tech. I had a history professor named Lawrence Foster. I had two classes with Dr. Foster. I liked him. He grew up in China before the revolution, before Mao took over. His parents were Methodist missionaries. Yay, Methodists! So whenever he talked about events that happened in China or pertained to China, which was often, he would draw upon his personal experience there as a boy. And every time he did so, I promise, I'm not exaggerating, every time he talked about his experience in China, he would tell us that his parents were missionaries. It was like he had forgotten that he told us this a dozen times already. But whenever he mentioned that his parents were missionaries in China, he would add this qualification They were medical missionaries. They were not proselytizing missionaries. Did you catch that? They were medical missionaries. They were not proselytizing missionaries. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Like, God forbid his parents would have risked their lives, their middle-class comforts, their safety, their prosperity, uprooted their family and moved to the other side of the world in order to simply save people for eternity. What a waste of time that would be. I mean, where would your priorities be? Why not instead risk your life and your middle class comforts, your safety, your prosperity, uproot your family and move to the other side of the world to, to make People more comfortable for a few years on this planet before they die and face final judgment and potentially hell. Not that. Dr. Foster believed in any of that, I mean, in so many words, he was saying, my parents were in China to actually help people, to do some good in the real world, not to give people some illusory hope about heaven and a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No, for Dr. Foster, the gospel was a stumbling block. It was foolishness as it will always be to most people in this lost and dying world. But you know what's not a stumbling block? You know what's not foolishness? Helping people with their physical needs, their medical needs, curing diseases, providing disaster relief, working for political reform, preventing malaria, feeding the hungry... Those things will never be a stumbling block and foolishness. They will always be respectable. But preaching the gospel? We need to embrace this biblical truth once and for all. Are you listening, my fellow United Methodist uh, ministers? If we're going to witness, and I mean really witness, with words, we are going to risk making fools of ourselves. I mean, at least in the eyes of others, we don't, we shouldn't care about how they judge us. I know that we often do, but let's face this truth. We are going to look like fools often when we try to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's just going to happen. The Bible says so, so let's let's lean into it for a change instead of always shying away from it. Earlier this year, one of my heroes died, Billy Graham. I love Billy Graham. I have an affection for him that's no longer shared by many mainline Protestant clergy, not to mention most people in the culture at large. Perhaps because Graham had mostly been out of the public spotlight for the past 20 years or so, perhaps because many people second-guessed his son Franklin's way of carrying on his father's ministry, certainly because Graham remained stubbornly faithful to God's Word and to Uh, unpopular ways of interpreting scripture, but whatever the reason, Billy Graham's death wasn't nearly as newsworthy or noteworthy as it might have been some 20 or 30 years earlier when Graham was commonly regarded as one of the world's most well-respected people. But times change. In fact, Graham's body was still warm, it seems, when Washington Post columnist George F. Will, another atheist, published an uncharitable column about Graham's life and legacy. Will said that Graham was not in the same league with the 20th century's two greatest religious leaders, MLK and Pope John Paul II. Why? Because MLK and John Paul accomplished something practical to make the world a better place. King in defense of civil rights and John Paul in defense of human rights. And here, Will would credit John Paul for his role in helping to topple Soviet communism. From Will's perspective, therefore, the world is a better place because those two great religious men lived. But Graham? Not so much. At best, Will wrote. His preaching, quote, gave comfort to many people and probably improved some. Probably, he says. How generous. But do you hear the contempt in Will's words? Do you hear the scorn? There is nothing, I repeat, nothing respectable or heroic or praiseworthy about the evangelistic work of Billy Graham if the gospel isn't true. I mean, conservatively, let's say that only tens of thousands of people, a small fraction of the people who came forward during the altar calls of Billy Graham's many crusades Let's say that only tens of thousands were authentically converted to Christ. Big deal, the world says, or as George Will would say, all that Billy Graham accomplished is spiritual, which is to say invisible, unreal. (laughs) And unless your religion is making a practical, tangible difference in people's lives and in the world, you're wasting your time. Billy Graham, therefore, wasted all his time. Indeed, from a secular and worldly point of view, he wasted his life. But of course, the gospel is true. Therefore, there are at least tens of thousands of people who are in heaven right now, who are enjoying eternal life or will be before too long because Billy Graham lived and remained faithful to his call. In which case, Billy Graham likely did the greatest, most important work of his generation because we know that the gospel is true and we do believe it, right? I do believe it, even as I confess that I haven't been nearly as faithful as I need to be in bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. Well. That ends today. I repent. Oh Lord, let it be said of me Brent White wasted his life. Brent was a fool. Or at least let it be said that I wasn't afraid of being accused of wasting my life. I wasn't afraid of other people thinking I was a fool. Lord, let me quote unquote waste my life. Let me be a fool if by doing so I might save some people for eternity. Amen. That's all I have for now. It was a long one. <laughs> uh, I love y'all. See you soon. I love